So we come now to um, the local church, and uh, we're nearly at the end of our, our, our trip through the doctrinal distinctives that we uh, wanted to look at. Uh, we've looked at things like uh, the sovereignty of God, if you remember. We've looked at things like uh, the ministry of all believers, the mission of all believers. Uh, we've looked at the word of God, the pursuit of joy in God. Uh, we've seen all sorts of different things. We've only got one more to go uh, after this week. But I want to argue, of all our doctrinal distinctives, of all the eight Uh, that we've been looking at, that this one this morning, if we put it into practice, actually I believe it will be the most costly uh, of all the doctrinal distinctives that we have. Others might be more difficult to get your head round, others might cause bigger disagreements between Christians, but I want to say that this one will cost us uh, more than the other ones. What do I mean by cost us? Well, it will cost us emotionally, in terms of our emotional energy, it will cost us financially. Uh, how we spend our money. It will cost us in terms of people, the people who gather with us and join with us. Uh, now you might be thinking, well if it's so costly, why are we doing this? Why are we uh, having this as a doctrine distinctive? Why bother? Is it really worth it? Well listen in and hear the, the wonderful gift that God has given us in the local church and why it's worth uh, the cost that it brings. So what is the thing that we're looking at today? Well, it's... Uh, The statement that we have is the priority of the local church. We believe that every community should have a church of local believers where the gospel can be heard and where the word is faithfully taught. And this is our only statement that we have of all the eight that has no ifs and no buts. If you remember, all the other ones have this buts something else. This one has no ifs and no buts. So what is a local church? Well... Uh, Before we define that, we need to think really what is the church, if you like, the the big picture. Now the word in the Bible is used of uh, all sorts of of gatherings, not just a religious word. Uh, So in Acts 19, the the rioting crowd that's baying for Paul's blood, uh, they're called a church. Uh, Now I shouldn't imagine that should be a normative thing for us, that that should be normal, that uh, we should be baying for people's blood in a a crowd, if you like. But it shows you that that word is just a, a word for a gathering of people. Some people make a big deal out of the idea of it being called out. So that's literally what it means, like ecclesia, called out. Um, but really it's used of any assembly. So I think it would be taking it a bit far to, to say that that has a specific meaning. But that idea of gathering is used all the way through scripture. Actually the idea of a gathering of, of God's people. So if you think through scripture, to be scattered is to be cursed, isn't it? So think in, in Eden where Adam and Eve sin, they're they're cast out, they're scattered across the world. Think of the judgment on the Tower of Babel, what happens? They're scattered across the world. Think of the exile that Israel had. What was that really? That was being scattered across the Babylonian Empire. So to be scattered is to be cursed, it's a sign of God's judgment. And then conversely, to be gathered is to be blessed. So Israel is gathered together, they're brought together around God. If you think of the image of God as a shepherd who gathers his sheep together. So the church, if you like, is the gathering that God has gathered by, by being the good shepherd, if you like, gathering his sheep together. And the church is all believers throughout all the world, throughout all time. It's sometimes referred to as the universal or the Catholic church. Not the Roman Catholic church, just the Catholic church. It means including all those people. So that's what the church is. But what's a church then? If that's the church, what's a church? Well, let's start with some easy things first. Uh, easy one to say is it's not a place, not a building. 
And that's easy for us, isn't it? Because we're here in a room with a climbing wall. Um, and we know that this, this isn't a church in the sense of a, a building. Uh, that's why other people use different words, don't they? Like chapels and gospel halls and meeting places. Because the building itself is not the church. Now, sometimes in our culture, you get that question, don't you? You've ever, you know, I don't know if you've ever had this, uh, but someone bump into you in the road and say, where's the church? And you point them to a location, don't you? But really, it's, it's not the place. That's just the sort of roof under which we gather. Now, slightly harder, it's not an event. Church is not an event. Church is not an event that happens every week, if you like. Or it's not like the Keswick Convention, 52 weeks a year. The reason that I say that is, well, think about it. Does church only exist on a Sunday? Think about that. Does it not exist for the rest of the week? So really the phrase, I'm going to church, doesn't really work. Only if it's a verb, I'm going to church, to gather, if you like, that works. But it's not an event that we go to. That we do have meetings, but that's not the essence of the church. The church really is people. Uh, The local church then is a group of believers gathered around God's word in a particular locality. But it's the people. The church is a group of local believers gathered around God's word in a particular locality. And what we mean by that there is that they are believers who are gathering together. It's not just that we're sort of meeting together to look at the Bible like we look at a piece of literature. It's Christians looking into God's word. And it must be around God's word. That's what makes it church rather than just meeting together socially. And we do that in a particular locality. That's what makes us a local church. And really there are um, the two things about the local church in our, in our statement that, that make it what it is. The first is that the word is faithfully taught. That's one of the things that happens in a local church. That's one of the marks that was given at the Reformation. The reformers were asked, what is a church? And one of the the things that they said was that the word is faithfully taught. I'd want to add to the reformers, and lived out. So it's not just that the word is taught, but actually Christians are actually listening and living it out. What we have really in a church is an opportunity to live out the gospel, to hear it taught and live it out. It's a forum for all those one-anotherings that you get in scripture. You know, love one another, care for one another, forgive one another, teach one another, rebuke one another. All those things are lived out in the life of a local church. They're not really lived out in the the church, if you like, are they? Actually, the real life of it goes on in the local church. So it's a place where the word is faithfully taught and lived out, where we love one another. And it's also a place where the gospel can be heard. So it's a place where if you come along as a non-Christian, you can hear the truth about how you become a Christian. I remember uh, a few years ago, I was at a, uh, a sort of evening event on a Saturday night, and it was organised by uh, a youth group that were meeting in a, in a church building. And uh, it had been put on as a Mexican night. And so, you know, you had your, um, we played piñata, and we had all the sort of Mexican food and everything. And um, somebody from that particular church had been asked to speak at that event, and uh, they basically were picked because they were Mexican, so it seemed to fit with a Mexican uh, evening. And it was uh, one of the most surreal evenings of my life, I think, um, because what happened, there, there was another youth group that had come and joined us for the evening, uh, the guy stood up to do the evangelistic talk to explain the gospel, uh, and he started talking about a Mexican revolutionary. 
And we're still thinking, oh, this is an interesting introduction. And anyway, it carried on, carried on, about 10 minutes. And it kept going, kept going, still about this Mexican revolutionary. And one of the guys who'd come visiting stood up in the middle of the meeting and he said, Brother, when are you going to tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ and how we are saved by faith alone in him? Uh, this guy was, I think it was from Colombia, the guy who stood up. And uh, the Mexican guy said, well, I don't believe that. <laughs> and then the Colombian guy starts trying to explain the gospel to the speaker. <laughs> and you can sort of see everybody staring at each other, rather rather crazy. Um, and everyone just, just ended up getting on with their own conversations in the end. Um, but this guy had been going to that church that the, the building was meeting for several years. And at that time, I was going to that church. And I thought back over the six months that I'd been there, I thought, how is it that this guy has never heard the gospel? And I thought, well, have I ever heard the gospel? You know, I've been going along, we've been going through the motions, the Bible had been opened up. And I thought, if I'd have gone as a, Christi- a non-Christian to this church, actually, even after six months, I don't think I'd have known enough about how to become a Christian. So we're left with this Colombian guy evangelising the speaker. But it's essential, isn't it, that the church is a community where the gospel can be heard. Where that can happen, if someone comes into our church uh, building, if someone comes to hear, they can hear the gospel. So it's it's essential that um, the gospel can be heard. But I also want to say it's essential the gospel can be seen in our lives as well. So think about what uh, Jesus says uh, in John 13. It's on the back of your uh, sheets, John 13, 34, 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You see though, actually, the witness there is actually the living out of the gospel in that particular setting. It's virtually impossible to be a good witness to Christ without being in a local church, I want to argue. Because that's where you see that love lived out, primarily. Obviously it's lived out in other ways as well, but the love for one another is primarily seen in a local church as we love one another. The local church is an expression of this loving one another in practice. And that's impossible virtually to do with the church, if you like. Because the church is is people living and dead all across the globe. It's really hard to practically really love someone, either when they're dead or when they're on the other side of the globe. Actually, the people that we, we love, the people that we are seen to love, are the people around us. This is how people will know that we're his disciples, that we love one another. And the context there really is the local church. So the local church really, as one author put it, is the gospel made visible. You can see something of the gospel in the life of the local church, in the way that we love one another. We can see the effects of the gospel as as we are changed to love one another more. So that's the local church, that place where the word is faithfully taught, where the gospel can be heard, a community of people. So how do the local church, down here, and the universal church fit together? What's their relationship? Well, I want to argue that a local church is is like an outcrop of that universal church, like the tip of an iceberg that goes much deeper. It's the bit that's, that's visible, but it's connected to all the rest of it. So someone once put it that the local church is a bit like, or the church is a bit like the Loch Ness Monster. Nobody ever sees the whole of the Loch Ness Monster at once today. There's always that bit that's sticking out and looks suspiciously like a log um, sticking out of the water. But you never see it all together. You only see the bit that comes above the water. But it's connected underneath. And that's a bit like us with the local church. We're like that bit sticking out 
uh, of the water were like the tip of the iceberg that goes deeper. Because actually includes the whole of believers through all time and across the whole world. Now if you've not heard that before, where is that in the Bible? Well it's in that passage that we looked at before. You find it helpful to have it open in front of you. Hebrews 12. And we're really going to focus from verses 18 to 24. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. I'll read it to you again. It says, For you have not come... Clear page, tips, navigation. <clears throat> <I'll> try again. <laughs> it was that, that one last time. Um, okay, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched... A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What it's saying there is that we, we've come together, but we've not come around Mount Sinai. That was the, the Old Testament church, if you like. That was an assembly uh, around the mountain. But it functions as a sort of understanding of what we are, doesn't it? Because it teaches us a little bit of what the church should and shouldn't be like. It's gathered around the word. That's true, God is speaking to the people. But do you see there that they, they beg for God not to speak anymore? They, they disobey the word, as we've been seeing, or we will see in Exodus. They beg that God speak no more. And they were meeting with God in his word, but they were terrified. Again, we've seen that in life groups, haven't we? We've seen the terror that faces them as they reach Mount Sinai. He's saying we haven't come to, to church like that, if you like. We've come to Mount Zion. Now, it's described in different ways here, isn't it? The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels in festal gathering, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, the, uh, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, as you read that, I don't know, when I, when I start reading that, I start thinking Revelation. I don't know about you. I start thinking like the end of Revelation. It sounds like the end, doesn't it? This great gathering around the throne. But this is saying we have come to this. This is what we're part of now. So when we gather, we don't gather alone. We don't just gather with each other. We don't only gather with all Christians around the world, if you like. We gather with the angels in festal gathering. We gather with the righteous souls made perfect. We gather with that great cloud of witnesses that we saw at the beginning of uh, Hebrews 12. Because we've already been gathered to them. You have come to this. It's that breaking in of the end again into, into the now. This is the universal church, if you like. Really, the, the again, that long word, eschatological church, the church of the end. But we are united with them supernaturally, by faith. We're there with them. So we're gathering this morning with... The whole of the church, if you like. So did you know that this morning as we gather together, that really this is just the tip of the iceberg of something much bigger? We can feel quite small on a Sunday morning, but actually we're with thousands and thousands of angels. They're doing the same thing that we are doing. We're gathered to them by Christ. So that's the, the universal church that we see uh, in Hebrews 12. 
And the local church, really, we see that throughout scripture, don't we? Those little outcrops. I mean, I'm not going to read them all to you, but think about Paul's letters. He writes letters to the church in Rome, the church in Corinth, the church in Galatia, the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi, the church in Colossae, the church in Thessalonica. John writes to the seven churches, doesn't he, in Asia Minor. They're writing to local churches. That's where we see local churches all the way through scripture. They're real local churches with different situations, different issues. And we see that in the letters that they write. So Paul couldn't have written Philippians to the Galatians, could he, if you know those letters? Very, very different tone. He couldn't have written Corinthians to the Thessalonians and vice versa. Do you see that there's a a difference between the churches? They're different outcrops. They would have different issues, if you like. Not that they can't benefit from those other letters from other churches, but they're different in their character. Each church has its own leadership. Each church has its own place. Each church has its own members. So local churches are not sort of new inventions. They're not sort of unwelcome institutions that have blemished the universal church. Actually, they were there right at the beginning. And scripture recognises them as being there. People were involved and committed to local churches right back at the beginning. So it's not an accident of time or of history. It was intended right from the start. We see it all the way through the New Testament. So that's what I want to argue those two things are. The church and the local church. Uh, We've seen it, sorry, but we still saw where it is in the Bible. What are the alternatives? There are some alternatives to to being committed to to a local church. Um, First alternative I want to give you is allegiance to a parachurch. So by parachurch, I mean one of those bodies that goes across different churches. And there are some Christians that I've known who've effectively uh, granted their allegiance to a parachurch before a local church. So let me give you an illustration. I'll change names and all sorts of details. But there's someone that I know um, from a certain place in which I've lived uh, whose allegiance really was to parachurch before local church. Uh, he chose the church that he was in because of their support for this parachurch organisation. When that church withdrew the support from the parachurch organisation, they moved churches. Uh, and basically they, won- they looked around all the churches in that particular place looking for a church that would support the parachurch that they were in. And I want to say that's the wrong way around, really, isn't it? It's, it's saying, well, I want to love this particular uh, organisation above the local church. And the local church then serves the, the parachurch. Or I had it a lot when I was a student worker working with uh, students at university. You'd often find that students would see their priority and their, their identity really as being part of a Christian union rather than being a part of a local church. And again, similar issues played out. So if, if the church was not supportive to the Christian union, they would leave the church. If the CU had something on, they wouldn't come to something at the church, they'd go to stuff that the CU had on. Not every um, student that we met, uh, lots of good examples as well, but there was a temptation to sort of treat that as, as their local church instead of having an actual local church. Their allegiance wasn't to the people there, it was allegiance to a particular group. So the priority there was not the local church. Why do people do that though? Well, often parachurch has, has a bit more dynamism doesn't it? So uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the terms, don't worry if you haven't, modality and sodality. Just sort of give me a nod or a shake of a head. Okay, right, okay, let me explain. So a modality is a mode of being. So uh, a family would be a modality in the sense that you just are. That's your mode, if you like. 
There's no purpose to a family. You just are. That, that's a mode of being. A sodality exists for a purpose. Uh, it's something that exists for a particular thing. So, um, mountain rescue. There you go. That's, that's something that, you know, you're, you're there and that's your purpose. And it'll involve some modality, but really, is there, if, the, if the mountains go away, and that's a bad example, isn't it? <laughs> um, imagine that people stop climbing mountains, sorry Ian, um, then they would go away, wouldn't they? Mountain rescue wouldn't be needed anymore. So it's, it's not just a mode, but it's, it's something dynamic. That's a modality and a sodality. Now as churches, the, the sort of default mode for us is to be a, a modality, that we are a family, and that's right, we are a family, um, but there should be an element as well of sodality. There should be an element that we're here for a purpose, which is one of the things that we've wanted to talk about, haven't we, as we've uh, thought about our life as a church. Because it doesn't just have to be the power church that's dynamic, uh, that's got things going, that's, that's actually doing things. Churches can be like that too. We don't want to lose the modality side, but certainly we could, we could add a bit of the sodality side. Often in power churches, there are opportunities to serve that are blocked in local churches. Sometimes you find in power churches there are people who feel that they've been overlooked by their local church and, and end up being in leadership of power churches. And I want to say that power church isn't bad. I'm not saying that power church is bad. Those organisations do wonderful things. They're not bad, but they're not primary. If they take our primary allegiance, then they're not working right. Because that's not really what's in the Bible, is it? Local churches are there. Bodies of believers who love one another. So that's the first uh, alternative. You can uh, have your allegiance to a parachurch uh, instead of a local church. Second uh, alternative is lone rangerism, I've called it. I don't know if that's a real word. Uh, Lone rangerism. Uh, The sort of attitude, well, I I don't need a local church. I don't need church. And it's much easier now that we've got the internet, because you can get the world's best speakers, you can... Uh, in terms of preachers and, and speakers as well, uh, to hear them, uh, and sit at home and, and just listen that way. Uh, and I think uh, we understand, don't we, that this isn't the biblical model. So we, we read Hebrews 12. Hebrews 10, which is also on the back of your, your sheet, has this in mind, this lone rangerism, I think, from verse 24 to 27. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we deliberate, sorry, if we go on deliberately sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. But you expected, pardon me, expected the first half of that quote, but not the second. Uh, we often just get that quote out of context. Uh, but actually here he's saying that they need to draw near, uh, they need to, to get together to encourage one another, to keep going in the context that actually the danger is that we, we carry on in sin. So he's saying gather together because, verse, verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately, he's saying actually gathering together is, is to help us not to sin, is to help us get there to the end. That's why he says all the more as you see the day approaching. It's not saying look forward to the day. It's talking about the day of judgment. So actually local churches are, are here to help us not go to hell, if you like, to help us keep going to the end. So we can't be lone rangers because we're to be part of the body, not to give up meeting together, even though you can get excellent resources on the internet. The third uh, alternative is sacramentalism. 
That's a, a Roman Catholic idea. And um, it's not so much uh, the local and the universal that they sort of draw the distinction to, but more the clergy and the laity. So you've got the church is really the clergy, the, the priests, uh, and then the rest of the church is the laity. And churches are connected, laity is connected via the clergy, if you like, via the priests, to the mother church in Rome, who is then connected to Christ. Uh, so connection to Rome is really the key in this idea of sacramentalism. So it's less of the sort of Loch Ness monster with bits sticking out, and more of a sort of octopus. So you've know, got the big bit in the middle and then its tentacles go out. And what matters is being connected to the head. Does that make sense? So sacramentalism is that idea of you need to be connected in. So that's how they view the world, if you like, at the moment, is, is that you, you have to be connected to this thing that's connected to that thing that's connected to this thing. And the same plays out through history in this view. So you're connected to Christ, you're connected to the church through apostolic succession. Again, it's connected by priests who are picked by priests who are picked by priests. And it's not this idea of being gathered eschatologically around the throne. Um, actually, it's a very different idea about the nature of the church. We want to argue that ours is the biblical one, that we're connected to Christ who connects us to the church, not connected to the church which connects us to Christ. And then our final one, our final alternative, is the megachurch. Uh, that's not particularly a local church, if you like, but it's a church that draws people in from everywhere. Uh, church is no longer local. So I can think of examples over the, the years that I've known. So again, when I was working with students, we have had some students who travelled from Lancaster to Newcastle every week uh, to go to church, uh, to go to this sort of large church in, in Newcastle, um, because that's that was their local church uh, for them. Uh, or I know uh, through a friend of a couple who... Uh, their pastor moved church from somewhere in Derbyshire down to somewhere in Norfolk. And uh, instead of sort of staying with the church and, and getting in, uh, working with a new pastor, they decided they would travel every weekend to Norfolk. So they didn't move house, they just kept going with their, their pastor down to, uh, down to Norfolk. And in one sense, megachurch is fine for us in a way if we can travel. But how can you do those one-anotherings at such a great distance, really? How can you effectively love people if they live over in, in Newcastle uh, and you only see them on a Sunday? And I want to say with this view, who loses out when you have these churches that sort of draw people in from everywhere? Well, I want to argue it's the town that you're from that loses out. Both the churches there, in that they, they miss you in the churches, but also the non-Christians in our towns. Non-Christians are unlikely to travel all the way to Newcastle, are they, to, to hear the gospel? You know, come, come, the, come to the carol service, send two hours away. You know, we can catch a train, it'd be great. Now, how far is too far? Well, it will differ from place to place, won't it? In different circumstances. And I know that the situation that we're in, where we've got, uh, you know, people who come from Ilkley and people from Otley, that's not ideal, is it? But we'll work that out a bit in our, our implications. But we want to be local, not drawing people in from absolutely everywhere. So what are the implications? Well, the first implication is church planting. Church planting. If we want good local churches everywhere, then we need to be committed to church planting. Having this distinctive means that we remain committed to seeing a church planted in Ilkley. It also means that we would like to see churches planted in Burley, in Menston, in Rawdon, in Yeadon, in Guiseley, if needs be. It means that we'll be supporting church plants in the Spen Valley, in Scarborough, in Leeds, in Paris. 
Because everywhere needs good churches. Wherever there is a need of good Bible-believing churches, we need to be supporting church plants. And that will cost us. It will cost us financially. Uh, In terms of money to plant a church, they reckon it's about £40,000 a year, my mate Graham reckons. He needs to plant a church in the Spen Valley. That's a lot of money, isn't it? To plant a church. It will cost us emotionally if we're committed to planting churches. Uh, Caroline and I were in a a church where we planted into the neighbouring town of Morecambe. And it was really hard emotionally. Lots of our our good friends, my best man, uh, the guy who came and spoke at my induction, uh, lots of different people that we loved, that we'd done all those one anotherings with, ended up on the other side. Uh, If you like, on the other side of the river. And that was hard emotionally. It's hard work emotionally as well. In those days when we did actually plant, suddenly you've got half, half as many people to do everything. And then dealing with hardships as, as church plants struggle. So there's an often quoted statistic that 80% of church plants fail. When I looked it up, I think the figure probably is more like a third, actually. So it's not quite as bad as 80%, but that's an American statistic, so it might be different for the UK. But a third fail in the first four years of church planting. Some fail later, some continue. And that's hard, isn't it? If that's such such a high statistic, if we even get, engage ourselves emotionally in these church plants, some of them will fail. It's a lot of emotional energy. Thankfully, God doesn't believe in statistics, does he? Uh, so actually, God will do what he chooses with uh, the church plants in, in Yorkshire and further afield. But it's worth being aware that it will be hard. It will cost us in terms of popularity. Planting churches often means upsetting other churches. It would be great if it didn't, but it often does. By planting, you're really saying this area needs another church here. And other churches don't tend to like that. They prefer more you in your small corner and I in mine. But we want to see a church planted in Ilkley. We believe that every community should have a church of local believers where the gospel can be heard and where the word is faithfully taught. And that is a goal that we are working to and we want to work towards. And in the meantime, we do have a church of sorts in Ilkley and one in Otley, but we call them life groups. Uh, Think about our, our definition. The local church is a group of believers gathered around God's word in a particular locality. Well, that does happen on a Wednesday and a Thursday night. It's not perfect, but biblically I think we'd find it hard to argue that they weren't some form of church. That doesn't make Sunday any less church, but it adds an extra dimension to our church lives. So I want to ask, are you involved in a life group? This is one of the ways that we actually help with church planting. And the same goes for Otley, because actually we need to build up the work here. If we actually do want to plant in Ilkley eventually, then we need to have a, a viable church in Otley as well. So we believe in in church planting. That's the first implication from this, but it will be costly. The second thing uh, that this implies is church membership. Church membership. If we are committed to um, to the local church, if you like, in principle, then we should be committed to a local church. I had a bit of an epiphany this week as I was thinking through the arguments that I've heard over the years, not, not from in here, but from other people, um, why they don't become uh, members of a church. And it seems that actually the arguments I've heard from my friends who are Christians about not becoming members of a church, 
are very similar to the arguments I've heard from my friends who are not Christians, why they don't get married. Just bear with me a second, you see what I mean? It's, if you heard things like, it's just your name on a bit of paper. Get that for, for both, don't you? Our relationship will basically be the same afterwards. I've been hurt in the past, I don't want to be hurt again. I don't think I'm ready to settle down. Actually, there are arguments that I hear from both my Christian and my non-Christian friends. But we need to stop dating the church, if you like, in terms of being members of it. And I've done this in the past. I hold my hands up. Uh, been at churches for years and not become members there. But we need to stop dating the church. Let me read you a quote from uh, Joshua Harris, uh, who wrote this little book called Stop Dating the Church. It's just from the introduction. It's quite a lengthy one, but it's worth it. Um, okay, it says, Here's a quick profile of a church data. Do you see one or more of these characteristics in yourself? Now, it might be you might be a member and you could be a church data. See how it goes. First, our attitude towards church tends to be more me-centred. We go for what we can get, social interaction, programmes or activities. The driving question is, what can church do for me? A second sign of a church data is being independent. We go to church because that's what Christians are supposed to do. But we're careful to avoid getting involved too much, especially with people. (laughs) We don't pay much attention to God's larger purpose for us as a vital part of a specific church family. So we go through the motions without really investing ourselves. Most essentially, a church data tends to be critical. We are short on allegiance and quick to find fault in our church. We treat church with a consumer mentality, looking for the best product for the price of our Sunday morning. As a result, we're fickle and not invested for the long term, like a lover with a wandering eye, always on the hunt for someone better. Take my friend Nathan. He attended two churches on Sundays, one because he liked their music, the other because he liked the preaching, and his involvement in both went no deeper. As the first church, at the first church, he'd slip out just before the last song wound down and drive to the other church five minutes away. He even factored in time to stop by McDonald's for an egg McMuffin. He timed it so that he'd be walking into the second church just as the pastor started to preach. I guess you could say Nathan was too timing. <coughs> if you can see any yourself in any of these descriptions, I want you to hear this from a former church data. God has something better for you and for me than dating the church. Powerful stuff. But um, often we hear things like those things, don't we? It's too formal. We should be a family, and we should. We should be a family. Uh, But just to let you know, I had to sign a document to make Caroline part of my family. Uh, We call it signing the register. We make it a big ceremony, but actually it's signing a a, a legal document. I even had to sign uh, a document to... After my children were born, I had to go in and register the births. Um, I was so tired, actually, at that point, I could barely remember any of the details. But even families have some formalities. It doesn't make them any less families. And if we ditch the formalities, we end up in a real mess. Imagine not registering your child or not signing the register. It would cause chaos, wouldn't it? Whose child is that? So church membership will cost us. Because we're committing to care for one another. Like a marriage, we're committing to love and care for each other. And that costs us, but it benefits us greatly. So, um, also, there's the issue of church discipline, but I'm I'm conscious of time. Last uh, implication uh, is that you should church locally, if possible. So church planting, church membership, 
and then church locally if possible. It's not always possible, is it? Some places don't have a church of local believers where the gospel can be heard and where the word is faithfully taught. That's why we have some folk who travel in from outside Otley and Ilkley. But that's also why we need to keep church planting on the agenda. Uh, so we need to think these sort of things through when we can about churching, churching locally. And probably the best time to think these things through is significant life changes. So think about it. When we're looking to move house, what do we think about first? Do we think about the dream house and then church second? We should live near a good church, shouldn't we? Or be in an area where a church is going to be planted if we can, when we have those decisions to make. When we're looking to move town, do we look at the job scene first or church second uh, and church second? Look for somewhere where your soul will be fed if you're moving. It used to frustrate me so much when year after year as a student worker, I get these students who would come and say, right, okay, I've got myself a job in X, just out of the blue. So it'd be, uh, I've got my job in Hornsey. Right, okay. And then there's a sort of obligatory Google search of, you know, right, churches near Hornsey. Right, can you drive? No. Right, okay, well, there's there's a Methodist church that looks like it's got about three women, uh, old women who are about to close. You've got, the, just be a, a real state. Think about church first in those situations and then think about what jobs you can find. And some of those guys that I sent that ended up going off to those places are not walking with Christ anymore. They never found a good church and they ended up wandering away. But if we believe in churching locally, then this will cost us. It might cost us our dream church. This is too far away. Can't all go to Bethlehem Baptist Church in America. As a church, it might mean that we have to ask people to think again when they come to us. We've already had to do that while I've been pastor with someone who's come from, from far away. And tell them, do you think you could go to a church that's a bit more local? There are good churches nearer by than we are. So it will cost us in terms of people in that. But we need to follow the biblical command, don't we? Luke six thirty one, Do to others as you would have them do to you. And we pray that they do the same. So when somebody turns up in a church in Leeds and they, they say, oh, you're from Menston. Have you heard about Bethel in Otley? That's what we pray, isn't it? That they would do the same in return. Why not try there? It would be much closer. And that will cost them. But ultimately, it's not about building our church, is it? As good as that would be. We need to remember with these things that it's about building the universal church, isn't it? It's actually about building the kingdom. Um, and it's costly, but it means all the more people gathered around Christ, all the more people pushing on to maturity. And it means that the glory goes to him, doesn't it? As he is at work through uh, the local churches. So let's pray that we'd be able to do that. We'd be involved in church planting, that we'd be committed to church membership and that we church locally uh, when we can. So let's pray uh, for us in all these endeavours. Let's pray.